0: Three, two, one. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't Jesus. with some of these people. I um, put down on your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my but advice. seriously. That legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by researcher and the author of All the Time in the World, Lisa Broderick, to explore issues including the most commonly studied brainwave frequencies and how they alter our perception of time, how we can slow down time using chronostasis, the role of selective attention in how we experience time, and finally, why people in life-threatening emergencies experience the slowing down of time. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Go. Habits. What's going on, everybody? Um I hope that all of you guys are doing well. Uh I'm recording this in, in late October, and I'll be honest, you know, the, the change in seasons is tough. Um I know this is coming out in like mid November, but um like right now it's getting dark at like five thirty-six, uh, which which is tough and then you know the weather like it goes from it was 80 80 degrees a couple days ago now it's like 50 um so seasonal affective disorder is a real thing right like or even if you don't have seasonal affective disorder I think everyone's sort of like everyone sort of comes down with a case of like winter blues um so I guess this is like a message to you guys but also to myself like you know make sure to get some sun um and uh, and make time to do something nice every day, do something fun every day, something to make you laugh, make you smile. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky because I have this little bundle of positivity that's at any given moment, anytime she hears me talk, and I'm talking, of course, about my puppy Penny, anytime she hears me talking, um, she just sort of, like, runs over to my side and she brings me one of her, like, 12 different tennis balls or, like, Rubber balls that she has because she wants me to throw it. Um, so uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's nice, I guess, having that. But she definitely has has a lot of separation anxiety to the point where, like, yeah, anytime I'm, you know, like talking on the phone or in a meeting or doing a podcast, um, she needs to be the center of my attention. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So seasonal affective disorder is a real thing, and um, it's it's tough. It's tough. So if, if you think you have seasonal affective disorder, talk to your doctor. Um, you know, might have ideas for treatment, prevention, management. Um, if you got case of the winter blues, winter will be over soon. I although I will say, like having I'm, I'm enmeshed in Game of Thrones, so the whole concept of winter sort of has a different meaning to me now. Um, I don't really talk too much about TV or movies in my regular episodes, but um, I'll have some bonus episodes coming up where I chat with friends about things and. Um, I'll probably – if you're curious, like my, my Rick Rex for movie and television takes, if you want some of those um, or if you're curious on like on where I am in Game of Thrones and all that fun stuff, make sure to, uh, to keep it locked in, in into those episodes. So for this week's episode, my guest and I talk all about time, and time is something that I chatted with Jeremy Pachter about on one of the earlier episodes of the pod, and we talked about um, sort of the quantum – physics and the underlying mechanics of of time, Um, and we talked about how to live the best life and and sort of the subjective and objective differences in time. So I I did want to take that conversation to the next level with, with my guest this week in talking about not just the scientific... Basis of time, uh, and and you know we talk a lot about physics and um, relativity and time dilation, but also like subjective experiences of time and how time is different when you're in the fight or flight adrenaline stage. Um, you know time, how time might be different for people in near death experiences. We talk about out of body experiences. So though time was the precipitant of our conversation. We ended up really just talking about human perception and attention and all of the different ways that, you know, that that your experience, your subjective experience of time might be altered. Um... So a little bit about my guest before we, we get into the episode. So my guest, Lisa Broderick, is a distinguished researcher and author. Um, she attended the Monroe Institute for the Exploration of Expanded States of Consciousness and studied imagery and dream reading at the American Institute for Mental Imagery for 15 years with noted author and teacher of Western spirituality, Dr. Gerard Epstein. She recently wrote a book, All the Time in the World, and runs a successful business consultancy in New York City and started a nonprofit called Police to Peace, which incorporates similar concepts to help unite police departments and communities around the country in ways that uplift and heal them, and her work has been featured on CNN and ABC News. So it was an absolute delight chatting with Lisa Broderick about some of these issues, and so without further ado, my conversation with Lisa Broderick. Lisa Broderick, welcome to Nervous Habits.
1: Ricky, thank you so much for having me.
0: It's my pleasure, Lisa. Really enjoyed reading, reading your book a lot. Was hoping to, to chat with you about some of the, some of the issues that um, you explored in the book, beginning with the concept of time in general. So in the book, you write about the, the concept of time dilation. How does that fit into this picture?
1: Time dilation is the idea that as you move through space, time itself is measured differently for the moving object than the unmoving object. All right, and in fact, it's thought of as one form of time travel. So let's take an example. If you were to get in a spaceship and you travel very quickly away from Earth, time inside the ship would slow down in comparison to that on Earth, right? And the reason it has, there's a lot of reasons for that, not only relativity, which of course is Einstein, but also gravity. Gravity, as you move towards and away from gravitational bodies, gravitational fields, time is affected. So you could do a flyby of a nearby star and return to Earth at nearly the speed of light, and a few years would pass on Earth. Well, possibly, possibly, this is theoretical, only a few weeks or months would pass for you in your frame of reference. But because you have your frame of reference, that's why it's called relativity, you're experiencing time as normally, but the people who stayed stationary, right, who were on Earth, they would have experienced time differently. And it all depends on how fast you were going and how far away the star was. I know it's a mind bender.
0: That almost sounds to me like, um, there's there's sort of thought experiment of the, of the two twins and one stays on earth and the other uh, travels in, in space. I think actually an astronaut, Mark Kelly, uh, I remember reading where um, they sort of looked at his, his uh, genetic code and uh, compared it to that of his, his identical twin and noticed that he, he, might, he might have aged a little bit more quickly because he had been in space relative to, to his um, brother on Earth. I don't know if have you heard about that study or if that just further uh, illustrates this time dilation that you speak of.
1: No, it, it illustrates both time dilation and time as it relates to gravity. So in space, less gravity, not on a big thing, a big giant rock like Earth, right, which generates gravity. So on Earth, a big, a big gravity-generating uh, body in space, time passes at a particular rate. When there is less gravity, right, time passes more quickly. The greater the gravity, the slower the time. That's why as you approach the event horizon, let's say of a black hole, time slows down and stops, essentially. I mean, they don't know. No one's ever been inside a black hole. But theoretically, for the gravity that would be inside a black hole, which is why it's called black because it's eating photons, it's not letting light emit. It is. It's intensely gravitational, and time slows down and appears to nearly stop. That's why Mark Kelly would have been age would have aged more quickly in space than uh, than people who stayed on Earth who were closer to a giant gravitational body.
0: Right, right. And, and, and that's something that you come, uh, come back to a, a, a lot in the book is, is sort of how our macro and micro um, experiences of time sort of differ, right? Like for, for folks listening um, in a micro sense, when you're waiting for your lean cuisine to come out of the microwave, two minutes might feel like an eternity. And, <laughs> and sort of like in a macro sense, uh, a year flies by when you're, you know, 29, but goes slower when you're, you know, 13, 14, 15. So what's, what's going on here? What, why on both a macro and micro level, why is it that the uh, tempo with which we experience time seems, seems to differ?
1: Well, I think of it this way. Time is both experiential and physical, right? Physically things move around, therefore time exists, right? With that said, we have our perceptions. Time is one part physical and one part perception, Because we control the perception part, we have the ability to influence and possibly even in some circumstances control time. Because time is not, I do not believe that time exists without uh, matter moving around. It doesn't, there is no forward march of time if there are not things that move, which is physical. We perceive, because we are perceiving beings, things moving around. Therefore, we're part of the quantum mix. And that's been proven in, of course, quantum mechanics, right? The observer is part of the of the collapse of the wave function in order to, to result in uh, an outcome for these experiments. Why can't we use that to time and our experience of time?
0: And, and something that you also sort of postulated is most people think of time as being asymmetrical. It only really moves in one direction, and that's forward. But But you make the case that instead of time only moving forward, uh, rather, this might just be the result of our observations and there might be another another element of it. So, so why exactly do you believe that?
1: So if we, what I wanted to do was give an, was give an example of how uh, we all experience, for example, slowed down time, right? So as Einstein said and you mentioned, when you're with a pretty girl, you know, an hour seems like a minute. And when your hand's on a hot stove, a minute seems like an hour. So that's the <laughs> relativity of time right there. With that said, in, in physics, not just quantum physics, in the physical laws that govern our world, time works just as well in the forward direction in these equations as it does backwards. Think about that. So our world is governed by equations, mathematics, and in these mathematical equations, time works just as well forward as backward in the forward direction as in the backward direction. So it suggests to me that there's something going on here. That was one data point. The second data point is now quantum mechanics. This incredible world, which we know is there, we can see, we can't yet control it, but affects every part of our world from computers to lasers to everything else. The quantum world is part of our everyday world. What they're showing in these quantum mechanics experiments, which are th- some are thought experiments, some are actually real world exper- experiments, is that what happens in the present can affect the past and what happens in the future can affect the present. These are quantum mechanic experiments. The most famous of one is the quantum eraser, right, where you literally, as a result of uh, scientists observing the collapse of the wave function, and we know what this is about. This is a double-slit experiment where there are photons being uh, shot through a slit, and they hit a uh, photoelectric plate on the other side, and whether or not the scientist was observing them affects whether or not they're a wave or a particle. Right. And so that experiment has been done where the decision about whether or not the scientist would would observe the, the, the photons going through the slit onto the photoelectric plate was made after the photons hit the photoelectric plate. But when it, when the observer was introduced into it after the fact, as having observed it, the experiment came out as though it was observed at the time. Think about it. Mm. So something that happened in the past, right? So something that happened in the past was changed by something that was happening in the present. That gives me pause for thought. That time is, again, not what we think.
0: Uh, I want to talk about a couple of other things that in your book um, you write influence our perception of the passage of time. One of them is selective attention. So how exactly does the selective attention um, play into how we experience time?
1: So selective attention is very interesting. It's a phenomenon for people, right? Possibly for other things as well, where someone focuses on something or a a particular thing or an event, while their brain is simultaneously, uh, unconsciously or subconsciously, suppressing uh, what it deems to be irrelevant or distracting information. And so what I use is, the example I use is in the book. It was an experiment done a couple of decades ago where, and there's a spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. There were two teams playing basketball, one in white shirts and one in black shirts. And the observers of the basketball game were told to count the number of passes between and among the white shirts and the black shirts. And that was their task. Meanwhile, the psychologist uh, dispatched a gorilla, a man in a gorilla costume, onto the, onto the basketball court to wave at the people watching and ultimately wave at the camera because it's been filmed and do some things on the court while the basketball players are still passing the basketballs and then leave. And the people observing the experiment were asked later, did you see a gorilla? And uh, almost to the person, they said, no, they did not see a gorilla. Now, how is it that we are so able to lead our daily lives and think that we know what's going on and miss something as big and obvious as a gorilla on a basketball court waving to us? The answer is selective attention. And the reason it's important is if people know that if they can master time, if they can get these concepts back, then they can master aspects of their lives to lead better lives, to lead lives of fulfillment and purpose and meaning and not be a slave to schedules and routines and believe that the arrow of time forever marches forward and we have no no part in it.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and you give a number of examples of uh, potential states of mind that people can enter in order to experience the, 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 the state that you're speaking about. We've spoken about flow state a number of times on the podcast, uh, but you actually take it a step further. You write about something called the Zytraffer phenomenon that I actually had not heard about before reading your book. Can you flesh that out for listeners?
1: For what they know, it's the result of a brain anomaly. With that said, it is a, it's a medical phenomenon where it's an altered perception of the speed of moving objects for real. It's like something that happens in the brain where people have literally seen time stop. And this has been documented. Like a high speed film clip slowed down. So why? Uh, usually it's a disease of the brain like an aneurysm. So an excessive enlargement of an artery, right? Which causes brain dysfunction. With that said, with these examples that it could happen, what made me curious was, is what is how we show up in our mind, does it affect reality or is it just sort of some perception thing where our brains are playing tricks on us? In science they would say, if it's in your mind, it's not real. I don't believe that's true. I think we have a lot more control and we perceive a lot more that's real than science knows how to measure yet, right? And mm-hmm. so if we can really understand the basis of, w- of how, for example, the subject of this book, time works and time slows down, we could do it for ourselves. And while the Zeitrapper phenomenon is something you wouldn't want to have because it's a medical condition, there are plenty of instances, almost everyone's had them, of actual slowed down time in experiences we have. So athletes on the field or, mm-hmm. or uh, car crashes, or uh, mostly they are experiences of grave danger where someone experiences slowed down time in order to be able to save their own life.
0: I was just going to ask you about that. Cause you mentioned that the, the, the Zytraffer phenomenon really only applies to, to people with, um, an epile uh, you know, with physical disease, like an epilepsy or a stroke or an aneurysm, but folks listening might, might be able to recall, um, you know, being in an intense situation, maybe not a life-threatening crisis, but maybe, as you said, being an athlete on a football field with, you know, 10 seconds to go or, um, you know, be, having to make a, 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 a quick decision, dr- driving a car, s- sort of um, intense experiences like that. So what would be driving their perception there if it's not something like the, the uh, Zydraffer phenomenon?
1: Well, there are many theories out there, right? And so there are theories that your brain stops processing uh, taking pictures of things. So there are fewer pictures. So the time seems to slow down. That's one. So I have another theory. I think it's a brainwave state. I think it's a brainwave state akin to flow, which they've studied, right, which is related to dopamine. And it's also related to uh, beta brainwaves. But I think it's a mix of brainwave states. So an, a beta brainwave state would be this, right? We're in conversation, things are going back and forth. There's a lot of movement. It's the busyness of our everyday lives. An alpha state is a little more relaxed, right, where we're in a flow of maybe looking at our planner or looking at some things online that, that are pleasant, but we're not asleep. But there are two others which could be in the mix as well, delta, which occurs during REM sleep, and gamma, which not much is known about at all. Now, a gamma brainwave state is a brainwave state, a very high brainwave state associated with uh, samadhi in India and, and experiences of unity or oneness. I think that something comes together when we have these experiences that can be seen in our brainwave states, which allow us to perceive time as, more, as going more slowly. And this has been studied with respect to flow, as you know, in terms of the flow state, where the brainwave states are contributing to our ability to perceive time more slowly, actually not just taking fewer pictures of it, but to actually perceive in a way, because these brainwave states are coming together, that time slows down and we can do something about it.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned the the brainwave states, Lisa, because that was probably my favorite part of the book. Um and, and I think that, you know, I, I want to make sure that that we draw emphasis to it for for listeners. You mentioned the five types of commonly studied brainwave frequencies. You mentioned beta, alpha, Uh, theta, delta, and gamma. So can you explain maybe an example of something that that the listener can think about to potentially trigger or experience that brainwave frequency?
1: Sure. And so I actually have exercises on this. And Mm. so an exercise would be um, where you are. And and again, I also work in public safety. I work in uh, policing and police reform. And so I'm I'm very much around that. So if you are listening right now, do not do this exercise. Do not close your eyes while driving. But if you're in another state and you're able to do that, you might just close your eyes. Right. And you might, uh, you know, um, which, which signals the brain to relax. And if you keep it relaxed long enough, you're going to go from, uh, serotonin to melatonin. We know that in the brain. So you close your eyes and you begin to relax. Something you can easily do is breathe, right? And I have this in the book. It's part of the exercise of focused perception where your breathing triggers more relaxation. And there's a particular type of breathing which can trigger the parasympathetic nervous system, which is to breathe in through your nose a regular inhalation, but breathe out through your mouth a long, slow exhalation, twice as long. And then do that again. And you're actually triggering your brain and the systems in your body, again, to trigger your parasympathetic nervous system to relax by doing this. As you do this, you can count down in your mind's eye with your eyes closed and you're breathing in through your nose a regular inhalation, but out through your mouth a long, slow exhalation. And you can see the number three in your mind's eye, you know, in any way that's good for you. You may think that you don't visualize well. Truthfully, it doesn't matter. And on the next inhalation and exhalation, see it dissolve into the number two. And then in the next inhalation and exhalation, see it dissolve into the number one. And in the next inhalation and exhalation, see it dissolve into the number zero. When we get there with the breathing and the eyes closed, you have changed your brainwave state. You are now pretty relaxed, unless you're still thinking about the stock market or driving to wherever. You are good to go. You're in a brainwave state, which is likely, it's certainly alpha, and it's probably bordering on theta, which is a meditative brainwave state. I call this the time of no time. And so it is a time where it's very suggestive. Now in, in, hypno, in hypnotherapy, this is called focused attention, right? It's a state where we have focused on something to the exclusion of all other things in order to change our brainwave state. Now we may be suggestible. But instead of being suggestible to someone else, let's be suggestible to ourselves. Why don't we experience an activity that we love, holding your newborn, being at the beach, you know, go in your mind's eye. And you may not feel like you're good at visualizing, but you can definitely re-experience a wonderful memory and go deeply and deeply into that memory. And as you do, be be part of the sensory nature of it. So if you're at the beach, smell the salt and feel the warmth of the sand and the breeze. If you're with your newborn, the smell of the newborn and what they're, how they feel and what they're saying and people are speaking around you, you're lost in this moment. Now you truly are in the time of no time. Mm. One could stay here in this brainwave state for a long time. There is an ability, an exercise in the book, which teaches you how to slow down the second hand on a moving clock. Using the same exercise, because we're in a time of such relaxed brainwave state, you stay in this long enough, you're going to go from theta into other states.
0: Yeah, that's, that's beautiful, Lisa. Thank you so much for sharing that exercise with everyone listening. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned hypnotherapy a moment ago, and how inducing the, uh, you know, the brain um, to begin firing uh, brain waves at these frequencies might make us more su- suggestible. So is that sort of the underlying mechanism behind hy- hypnotherapy that if you allow the brainwaves to slow down from gamma to alpha and then from alpha to theta and delta, you can sort of influence someone's behavior. Is
1: that how that might work? So hypnotherapy is a very, very well-researched, highly developed discipline. So I, and I haven't really studied brainwave states around hypnotherapy, but I have studied my own brainwave state around this particular exercise, which I think is very similar for all the reasons you state. And that is we can intentionally induce brainwave states by what we think. We can make ourselves crazy with data by thinking of all the things we have to do today and tomorrow and try try to remember them over and over. Mm. We can put ourselves into theta by running or doing imagery or doing meditation. And clearly in a brainwave state that is more akin to a flow state, we're going to be more able to focus our perception, to give suggestions to ourselves, to have an experience of time which is not frenetic but indeed slowed down, Mm -hmm. and use these for purposes that we want to in our lives
0: you know in the exercise um that that we went through a little while ago you moved us down the scale um from you know the the shorter frequencies to the longer ones from from alpha to theta from beta to alpha i'm wondering if there's anything that you would recommend to listeners where you could move the opposite way so instead of an exercise to calm people down um, and, you know, have them be that more like relaxed and detached state An exercise that would make people more alert moving from like an alpha to a beta or a gamma. Is is that possible?
1: Yes, it is. And I can, we can do a beta exercise right now. It's not very pleasant because you're really going, we're going to over, overtax our brains, but it definitely puts you in in an alert state, a highly alert state. Gamma is a little bit different. It's not well studied. Mm. It happens rarely. I happen to have had brain electrodes on when I went into full gamma for an extended period of time. So I know that it exists and I know that I've experienced it and I know what that is like. But that is actually pretty rare. Mostly very long term, long time meditators, monks, et cetera. And it's rare to have brain electrodes on your head while that type of thing is happening. But clearly, you know, we can go into a beta state. We're probably in an alpha state. You know, Ricky, you and I are having a conversation back and forth. Mm. To go into a beta state would be to, Make a list right now of all the things you need to do for the rest of the day. Just start enumerating them and make sure you know them. And then once you, let's get through the list and you're thinking of, oh, I have to do this and this and this, then enumerate them, right? One, two, three, four, and five. And when you get to the end, start over again and then try to remember them all at once as though you're looking at a piece of paper. If you do that, (laughs) you're gonna go into a highly alert beta brainwave state if that's what you need, right? I think of an alpha state as a little more productive, personally, mm. myself. I can do the beta brainwave state. And I think we go into highly alert states uh, on command because of our body. For instance, fear puts us in a highly alert beta brainwave state. Right. <clears throat> right. Moving through our brain. So it's not one that I choose to do, but I have done it. And I did it with brain on, so I know mm. that it works.
0: I like the uh, I like that that um, example of of making a enumerated list of items you want to do today, number them, and sort of try to repeat or memorize the order. I would imagine that a lot of people listening, and my, I'm included in this category as well. You know, it, it implicitly do that um, every day, right? with 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 ourselves and our routines. Um, so I wonder you know is there a way for us to measure our, our our brain waves to sort of take take stock of this kind of thing you know are there physiological signs that might indicate whether we're in one of these five camps
1: well i would have you know would really have to be experiential unless you go to a brainwave institute which would be monroe institute or BioCybernaut. Mm. and so they study brains and brainwaves and in so doing it takes brain electrodes on your head right which are measuring your brainwave states and then and then putting it out to uh, uh, machine, which is uh, tracking your brainwave state based on frequency, as you've just said, the lower to the higher, et cetera. That's something you can do. But experientially, people, generally speaking, know if you if you can associate the feeling with the brainwave state, mm. then you can bring it on. So you can bring on a, a beta brainwave state, making lists. Alpha is your everyday life, which is really not, not stressed out or under duress, right? Theta is more monotonous, more meditative. I'm a meditator, so I actually seek theta twice a day in order to restore myself. Delta is REM sleep. With that said, Delta has existed in the daytime, which is where people are awake, which is a very interesting phenomenon. And then gamma, which is so little understood, but it's a unity ex- experience. So
0: uh, in addition to, I mentioned the Zytraffer phenomenon, something I wasn't familiar with before reading the book, you write about something called uh chronostasis. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, So what is uh, chronostasis, Lisa? And how can listeners slow down time using this method?
1: So when you think about chrono and stasis, right? Chrono is time and stasis is standstill, right? It's an explanation that has to do with the eye. And it it is for why some scientists use for for why we might perceive time as moving more slowly. So it has to do with the pictures that the eye takes of things as we see as being fewer as our brains are engaged in other activities. In the book, I take the, the, uh, I take people through the, the exercise that we just did of slowing down yourself and your breath and moving into a brainwave state and going into a very, very, uh, wonderfully sensory, enjoyable memory. And you're doing that while you're actually looking at a clock or watch with a second hand. You can do all this your, and your eyes, while your eyes are initially closed, you open your eyes and you're looking at the clock or watch second hand, which is close to your face but you're living, you're reliving this wonderful sensory, fully immersive memory. And then you get to a certain point, and the book takes you through this, where if you you look back, look away from the clock and blur your vision and look back at the clock, the second hand will appear to have stopped moving. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of explanations for why that might happen. Chronostasis is one of them. And that is, Your brain stopped taking pictures of the clock hand moving and was stuck at a certain place because you were working on the memory, just a little bit like selective attention. I have a different explanation. I think that our perceptive ability having to do with brainwave states is truly perceiving time differently in that instance. And the reason I believe that, again, the many stories of slowed down time, which people experience. Where if it's only chronostasis and your brain didn't take a picture of the bullet coming to you, why did you move out of the way? If it's only chronostasis and your brain stopped taking a picture of you, of things around you while you're in the life-threatening auto accident, why did you know to move your body so the steering column didn't impale your torso? You see, there's a bit of unexplained uh, science around this in terms of human experience.
0: I, I know when I first read that passage, I, I didn't actually try the the whole, um, you know, practice of of staring at the, t- the clock and trying to freeze time. Or I think at one point you said you can make the the second hand go backwards. I, I haven't tried that for myself. <laughs> I, I definitely. Right. Um, I, yeah, I, but, but the mechanism behind that is, is definitely like perplexing. You know, I, I also wonder, and we touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, sort of the intersection between our emotions and how we, um, how we experience time. Uh, you, you wrote about fear in the book and and you mentioned it earlier. Um, I know sort of anecdotally, I took a, a trip to Greece over the summer. My friend and I went tubing for about 10 minutes. And if you don't know, Tubing is when you lie down on your stomach and you hang off of a circular tube while a speedboat pulls you at full speed and whips you around, making hard left and hard right turns in an attempt to throw you off the tube. It was only—oh t- my goodness! T- yeah, it was—it was—it was, it was, it was uh, a, a little bit, uh, just a little bit, almost traumatizing. Uh, you know, ten minutes, Lisa, but it felt like an eternity. So, I'm wondering, with that experience as as uh, as my my reference point, was the was the emotion of fear actually driving my slowdown perception of time? And is there is there any um, any data or any scientific basis behind that?
1: So it's believed that fear begins in the brain, in the back of the brain, the amygdala, and spreads through the brain to the front of the brain, into the body, signaling radical adjustments for defending itself, right? And so it triggers fight or flight. We've all heard about that and some have experienced it it speeds up processes like breathing and heart rate. So I think, I believe fear is one reason for time speeding up or us losing time in perception. You may be so afraid that you just sort of black out. That is not the same Mm. as an experience of slowed down time. All of the different experiences that people relate in, in first person, mostly having to do with high speed moving vehicles, where they were in slow motion and able to save their own lives, they never felt fear. They sensed they were in danger, but their brain went into a different mode. I believe it went into a brainwave state akin to flow, which allowed them to perceive time as slowing down or even stopping.
0: Um, Sort of on on a similar note, we talked earlier about near-death experiences and how they might alter our perception of time. In the book, you write about out-of-body experiences. So how do they fit into this equation?
1: Well, it's a very interesting phenomenon, and that is it's where someone has had an experience Uh, in which the body is so traumatized, so threatened, that um, that death is clinically, you know, um, clinically uh, observed by a a practitioner, or, uh, or another very near death experience where it's so extreme, that someone may have an experience where they feel like they've left their body. And it's quite pervasive, apparently, one out of 10 Americans, have experienced some sort of experience where they feel like they're no longer in their body. They're looking over their own shoulder. And it's an interesting phenomenon. It's very hard to study because again, like me with gamma waves, where I happen to have electrodes on, it'd be hard to replicate an experiment of someone in an out-of-body experience in a clinical setting where they are in a death experience and they're out of body, but they happen to be in the laboratory. So there have been a few, in which it, when people who are very practiced, who feel as though they can leave their body uh, with, with some sort of intention, have been studied. And what they've noticed is that there, there's uh, brainwave uh, differences for people who are experiencing out of body. They've asked the people later, did you see this or that? And they've been able to say yes. So the truth is, it's anecdotal because it happens, someone's in, a, in such an extreme experience, it's, it's hard to uh, chronicle. There have been some in the laboratory, but I believe that out-of-body experiences are again, related to time. We, We may have heard a phrase called out of phase. Out of phase exists in music, right? So if waves, musical waves are out of phase, you may hear dissonance in music. Everything really is frequency and vibration. So out of phase means that two things are a little bit out of sync. What about if someone is in a death experience and they somehow go out of phase with time? What about if they're slightly in the past and we're now, would you be able to see them? Would they be able to see you? The truth is we don't know. The nature of our reality is so rooted in time and there are theories about time which we haven't applied to our own experiences. What if these very advanced scientific theories could be applied to our own experiences to explain some of the things that we know exist but we can't explain yet?
0: You know, th- I think there's a couple of different dimensions to out-of-body experiences just, just based on um, what what you just stated and, and elaborated on in the book. Uh, and and by the way, for listeners, we're not necessarily speaking about drug-induced out-of-body experiences like people who are hallucinating, you know, having taken an, an opioid or hallucinogenic drug. Um, I, I also don't think we're referring to dream, uh, out-of-body experiences and dreams. But I guess my, my objection to this, Lisa, and, and I don't know if, if you have an answer or if there is one is, you know, it's difficult to, to categorize, is, is this an out of body experience? Or is this almost like a, a neurological um, irregularity, right? Like is someone, I, I guess it's difficult to to qualify in the example of the person that um, was able to specify the details of the surgery while they were unconscious, but for other people who have out of body experiences, you know, how do we know that these aren't just dissociative experiences that are taking place because of a, um, some sort of irregularity or deformity or breakdown, um, of, uh, you know, the, 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 the different systems in the brain, um, that might be indicative of sort of a, a mental illness or even like a schizophrenic break. How do you, how do you sort of like draw that distinction?
1: Well, they may well be, and we talked about Zytrapper, which we know is that, you know, so the, the perception of uh, the speed of moving objects slowing or stopping time, right? We know that exists and it's a result of something like an aneurysm. There may be that. You know, there may be other brain wave and perception experiences that people have. The real, my real question is, if this is so, um, so uh, unusual and, and abnormal, why do so many people experience it? There are ex- where, where people experience things and they're for themselves. They are as real as you and I speaking here today. Number one, there have been only a very few and it is difficult to replicate. I will admit experiences of out of body in a clinical setting, such as the patient who was able to recount her own surgery or 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 subjects who have gone out of body in a clinical laboratory setting where they were able to report things. The truth is, once again, we don't know. we know these things exist. We are not able to control them or even see them yet. we can't replicate them. maybe we can, but I think that with practice, we can at least use them to improve our own lives.
0: yeah, for sure uh, for sure and 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 um you know on, on that note, we've covered a lot of ground on this episode, Lisa. if there's one thing that you want listeners to take away from our conversation today, what would that be?
1: I would say that the most important words for any human in any language may be, I have a feeling. And so, uh, when if you have a feeling about something, could there be, again, we talk about phase and we talk about time, could it be some way of connecting with something that is uh, that is in the future that resonates for you? And the reason I, I think that that's an important question, an important statement is that, where do we as human beings meet the moment You know, what do we have to do in each moment to be closer to living the lives we want? Quantum mechanics shows that the observation of a human being, an observer, affects and impacts reality. Can we use that in our everyday life so that, as I've said before, up until now, from the perspective of science, most people would say that if it's in your head, it's not real? What if that's not true? What if it's in your head and it is real?
0: I love that. To everyone listening, you can purchase Lisa's book all the time in the world on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Uh, Lisa, I'm sure listeners want to know where they can go to follow you and to learn more about your work in general.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much, Ricky. Yes, on social media, it's Lisa Broderick and all the time in the world and uh, on Facebook and Twitter and all the other usual outlets you would find. On the book, uh, for the book, there's a website, all the time book. And on that, you can download an exercise, which is an extended exercise of focused perception, which we did on the show, which will allow you to move into a theta brainwave state and see if you can create wonderful things in your life for yourself. And you can download the recording and, and listen to it, uh, let's say, very late at night or in the morning when you wake up in order to have uh, a day which is enriching and uplifting for you.
0: Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I definitely implore all my listeners to, to check that out. You know, I know all of us have incredibly busy lives, um, but need to make time, as I say all the time on the show, make time for mental health and wellness. And I think that uh, Lisa's exercises are a great place to start. Lisa Broderick, thank you so much again for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: No, Ricky, thanks so much for having me.
0: So that was my conversation with Lisa Broderick. There's a number of things I want to share with you, um, sort of stemming from the conversation that we had. I guess the best place to start is with all of our conversations surrounding brain waves. So I've never experienced an EEG. Um, an EEG is an electroencephalogram. Oh, it's way too late for this. An electroencephalogram. Let's see. Electroencephalogram. Electroencephalogram, electro, an electro, electroencephalogram, an electroencephalogram, <laughs> um, is is the test that Lisa spoke about that detects electrical activity in the brain um, using uh, electrodes, which are like small metal discs attached to the scalp, and that actually like creates a reading of of the different brain waves. It's usually used to detect epilepsy or diagnosing other sort of. Neurological disorders, brain tumors, uh, brain damage from head injury, sl- uh, stroke, sleep disorders, uh, sleep clinics. I think they use EEG machines. Um, and so I've never experienced it, but uh, I got to tell you, the more I read about the low and high frequency brain waves, the more um, it sort of helps me understand, as we were speaking about our um, perception of time, right? Because the delta waves, those are the lowest frequencies that occur in deep sleep um and in infants up to 1 year old uh those tend to be the highest in amplitude and the slowest waves um the theta the next level brain wave are generally stronger during meditation prayer and spirituality um and those are the second highest amplitude and second slowest and subjectively people in, in the theta state uh, feel intuitive, creative, um, dreamlike, drowsy, and really tapping into their imagination. The next level is alpha waves. And I think Lisa mentioned this during our conversation, but alpha is one of the brain's most important frequencies to learn and use information in a classroom and on the job. Um, and you can sort of increase the alpha wave, alpha, alpha brain wave. Um, access by closing your eyes um, or trying to think or, or calculate um, something and the result of that is but you're also relaxed but you're, you're conscious so that would be sort of the middle of the road brainwave. The beta um, brainwaves, uh, that tends to be the dominant rhythm for people who are alert or anxious. Um, so if you're listening and thinking, you're problem solving, exhibiting uh, decision making or judgment – um, and your fo- and you have that focused attention or focused perception that we spoke about so that's that's beta um and then the 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 one that's really rare uh the highest level brain waves are the gamma brain waves and it's also the least understood but i will say there is there's there's a lot of um interesting literature on gamma waves some people believe that gamma waves actually create the sort of the neurological basis for consciousness and for attention because don't forget and this is something i've talked about on the pod before as much as we know about psychology and neuroscience the concept of consciousness and, and the specific um the specific localization of consciousness right like that's really unknown uh neuroscientists can't point to a specific location in the brain and say this is This is where consciousness happens. This is how consciousness originates. We don't know about it. And there's a lot of literature that says that gamma brain waves are actually um, uh, associated with consciousness. And there's also, when you look at altered gamma activity or abnormal gamma activity, that's what's associated with uh, mood disorders, with major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, um, with potentially... Uh, schizophrenia for people that have decreased gamma wave activity. So what's amazing um, is just you know how much you can learn about a person's you know subjective experience of, of of the world just by looking at at their brainwave. So that was something really interesting that I gleaned from my conversation um, with with Lisa. Uh, we spoke a lot about the differences in how we experience time um, on a macro and micro level, and I made this point in the episode, but. It's just so interesting that we experience childhood as lasting so much longer than our adult life. Like I don't, I don't know about you all, um, but I feel like, and let me see if I can find the words for this. Um, I feel like my life, the duration of my life from age twelve to eighteen, or even you know fourteen to eighteen. That four or five-year period feels almost longer than my life from 18 to 29. I feel like my subjective experience of time was slower. And there's a number of reasons for that. We talked about emotions and how emotions might actually – influence our perception of time we didn't talk about dopamine and the role that it plays in 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 time perception um and in part because that wasn't something that that wasn't something that uh, lisa explored in the book but also because you know i've spoken so much about dopamine in past conversations with dan lieberman and and, um anna lemke but dopamine also plays a role in in perception do you know the uh, the saying time flies when you're having fun Sort of the reason for that and, and, you know, one hypothesis for why, um, you know, time seems to apply when we're having fun is because pleasurable events actually um, boost our dopamine release, which would cause our internal clock to run faster. So your subjective sense of time in that case would grow faster than time itself, meaning that short intervals would seem longer than they are. So essentially, increased production of dopamine would account for the difference in, in our perception of time. And there's other reasons for, you know, the concept of time, uh, time flies when you're having fun, to some extent, you're not paying attention. I mean, this is common sense, but to some extent, you're not paying attention to time as much, right? Like, if you're in high school English class, you're staring at the clock, and you're waiting for 3pm, for you're waiting for dismissal, as opposed to if you're just, you know, hanging out at the movies with your friend, you're not... You know, you don't see the runtime of the film on the bottom of the screen. So in that regard, it, it appears to be moving more slowly. I think that's that's one reason. But another reason, and, and this this has to do with sort of our our, our um, cognitive uh, biases and cognitive heuristics, is we don't remember things the same as when we're experiencing them. So it very well might be that when we're living in the moment when we are in class waiting for the bell to ring, waiting waiting for... The school day to end. Time seems to be going by slow. But then afterwards, your perception of that, sometimes it's reversed. Sometimes looking back, it appears to have moved quickly. Sometimes, um, you know, it doesn't appear to have moved that slowly to begin with. So, to a certain degree, with memory, when we try to reconstruct events and judge the duration of time that those events lasted, it's not necessarily super reliable. And and there is some empirical evidence back in this up. Um and, and this was mentioned in Lisa's book, but a researcher from Duke University wanted to sort of figure out why we remember our childhoods as lasting so much longer than our adult lives. Um because it, this this isn't, you know, unique to me. I mean, this is something that I think a lot of people can relate to. And what this researcher ended up concluding is that our brains process images more slowly. As our bodies aged. So, because the images from our youth were processed more quickly, there are more of them to remember, which has the effect of stretching out the amount of time over which we feel they occurred. In contrast, in our adult life, because our brain's ability to process images degrades over time, we now have fewer images to remember as an adult. So, it gives us the sense that we're jumping from one memory to another quickly, as though time has sped up. That I mean I mean, I, I never really thought of it that way. Just that just that we have more images from our youth to remember. So it stretches out the amount of time over which we feel they occurred, as opposed to fewer images to remember, um, and our processing ability degrades over time. So it almost produces the illusion that it's sped up. I mean, I, I think I think there's merit to to the Duke University researchers argument there. I also think part of it has to do with With routine, right? Like when we're young, you know, every day there's a new experience. Every day you're learning, every day you're experiencing the world and and trying something different. As opposed to when you're, you know, almost 30 years old, right? Like you're working at a job, you're commuting on the train every day, and then you're sitting at a a desk and uh, completing a spreadsheet or going to a meeting. There's nothing really novel that happens anymore. So it could also be we have less novelty um and you know when you do the same thing every day um when you're experiencing groundhog day it's like yeah of course it it seems like um time is moving more quickly than when uh when it's slowed down so i think there that i think both of those are interesting interesting perspectives on this this issue of the subjective differences and how we Experience time at different points in our lives. Um, I literally looked over my shoulder, and Penny is passed out. So all this, all this like high level of abstract talk about time has just completely put her to sleep. Um, and I also wonder, and and this is something Lisa touched on briefly in the book, um, how this phenomenon of time slowing down or speeding up intersects with our with our experiences of being in a dream right like have- how many of you guys listening have fallen asleep and dreamt for what seems like hours, but then when you awake, you realize you've only been asleep for a minute or two. I'm sure that everyone listening is aware that the average dream really only lasts between you know five to twenty minutes um Now that's an average; some dreams can last a few seconds, others can last up to an hour um but regardless. You know, most of the time when you have a dream, you know, it feels like it feels like an hour, feels like two hours. Uh, and that's as is a theme with this entire episode, that's your brain playing a trick on you, right? Like we can't trust our subjective experience of time. You know, in the movie Inception, there's a line by Joseph Gordon-Levitt that's it's something along the lines of like five minutes in the real world is an hour in in, in you know the dream world. So think about that for a moment. Five minutes in the real world is an hour in the dream world. And then as it goes down further, an hour in the next level, like the dream within the dream, is only like one minute in the real world. And then the dream within the dream within the dream is 30 seconds. And you guys have seen Inception. I mean, this 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 movie came out, what, 2010, 11 years ago? So you know that um, a lot of the movie... Takes place as the van was hitting the water in the real world. So, you know, within the span of a couple seconds, um, all this was taking place on the second, third, fourth level. Um, now I really want to rewatch Inception. But uh, one of the reasons why uh, one of the, the main characters, um, Leonardo DiCaprio's wife, Marianne Cotillard, why she wanted to stay in the dream world. Um, well, she wanted to stay in the dream world because she wanted to sort of live in the fantasy and. Um, on the subject of time, maybe another reason why she wanted to stay in the dream world is just because time you know moved time moved so just because the experience of time was so slow in a dream state relative to the real world, and you know I guess practically speaking, you know how many times are you fast asleep and you're in the middle of a good dream and you uh and you don't want to wake up and you want to see how it ends um and sometimes it takes you know seconds it takes a minute um of extra sleep and that that could be hours in a dream so i think there's there's something here something to something to this this notion that you know we want to prolong time and living in our dreams is one way that we can do that but as you know from the plot of inception at some point you got to uh you got to wake up and you have to find a way to translate that experience of time from the dream state into your reality so long time listeners of the pod will know that I've been keeping a dream journal for the last decade or so um in part cuz I think it helps me understand It helps me understand sort of my my deep-rooted feelings and and thoughts and desires and fears, Um, you know, things that are just outside of my conscious awareness. I'll jot down in the morning. I'll be like awoken and then very semi-conscious, like haze. I'll just jot down things. And then weeks later, I'll look back and and actually be able to recall the dream. It's just amazing that the the sheer practice of writing it down um, allows me to – Remember the dream mostly in its entire entirety. I actually i did i did an episode on dreams a, a long time ago, and I read a couple of excerpts from the dream journal. Um, like recently, let's see if I have anything that I can share here. Change the names, of course. Yeah, I really write down a lot of these dreams. I mean, most of us dream, as I said, three to five times a night, um, and it's just. It's really incredible. Um, uh, this is from a couple of months ago. I'm playing basketball one-on-one with uh, one of my friends in front of a crowd. Um, then in the next scene, because my dreams are sort of like cut between scenes. In the next scene, I'm in Jeremy, uh, Jeremy from the podcast, uh, Jeremy's house. His parents are there and my friends are there. I'm anxious because I wanted, I have to go home and do work. I'm H-U-N-G-R-Y. I can't say the word because Penny will hear it and think I'm going to feed her. Um, And I take Penny outside to get a tuna sandwich and people are watching us. In the next scene, I'm in Times Square. There's a bunch of people waiting to order a taco but have questions. They ask if I speak French. I say yes and begin giving them instructions on how to order the taco in French. A crowd gathers to listen to me. Um... Yeah, some of these dreams are really, really peculiar. Uh, in this one, I am I go back to Greece for another trip. This was after I returned from Greece. And I'm rollerblading alongside some friends from high school, but I'm stressed about missing my flight. Eventually, I go back inside to the airport. I leave the rollerblades on the side, but I'm paranoid that I lo- lost them after. Um, in this one, I'm wearing a Fitbit under my skin. And I need to bring someone with me who had to – I can't even read some of the handwriting because it's like it's, – it's completely in, 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 unintelligible. Uh, the Fitbits under my skin. I need to bring someone with me who had a remote to allow me to pick stuff up. We went to the science store because I needed a yardstick. What? Uh, I'm riding bikes with Bill Burr to the shoe store. Bill rides too far ahead of me and I call out for him, but he can't hear me. So yeah, I, I'm, I apologize guys. It's, it's, it's one in the morning here and I'm, I'm losing my mind. So, so anyway, I just wanted to share a couple of those dreams. Um, I will say as I'm, uh, trying to finish this podcast, um and it's one in the morning and i'm pretty drowsy and lethargic my subjective experience of time probably like time is moving more slowly because my um i think it's because my brain waves are slowing from probably alpha to theta and pretty soon to delta it's gonna be hard for me not to think in terms of that like Sort of throughout my everyday life, like, oh, I feel myself becoming more gamma, becoming uh, more beta. Um, Okay, I guess to wrap up this conversation, um, I don't even know if I can do this right now, but the... All right, here we go. So one of the exercises that was in Lisa's book, and she mentioned this, is... The exercise to slow time through chronostasis. So, this is essentially where ordinary people are able to shift into a state of timelessness or focused perception and see the second hand of an ordinary analog clock slow down or stand still. So, I'm going to do this with you guys. Try it by performing these steps. One. Sit comfortably in front of a clock or watch with a second hand closely in front of your face and note the second hand's position. All right, like I got my watch. Okay, I got my watch. Um, a second, sit comfortably in front of a clock or watch with a second hand closely in front of your face and note the second hand's position. Okay, so it's at 15. Okay, keep your head still as you look at the clock and intermittently shift eyes away from the clock as far to the left or right as you are able. Some people can intentionally blur their vision and take the clock face out of focus, which works also. Do this for a short while, and then use your intention to shift your eyes directly straight back to fixate directly on the clock face. So I'm trying to multitask here, trying to tell you guys the steps and do it myself. So intermittently shift your eyes away from the clock, as far left, far right. And then fixate directly on this clock face. Okay. Try this a few times, blur to focus, so that you can manage this effortlessly. Then begin to relive a vivid memory that is long and involved, like playing a wonderful movie back in your mind, a place you love, the first time you held your newborn, or a memorable kiss. I don't have a newborn, so I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with reliving the New York Mets clinching the National League Championship Series and advancing to the World Series in 2015. <laughs> Am I really gonna do that? I don't know what I'm gonna do. All right, so I'm gonna relive a vivid memory that is long and involved. Okay, when you look back at the clock. Often, to people's astonishment, the second hand will appear not to have moved. In some cases, it moved backwards. Time has noticeably slowed down during that single second you were lost in thought. So it seems like really the the key element of this is bring your is try to try to immerse yourself in an intricate and vivid memory to the point where you lose awareness of time. And then, I i think, I, I mean, I haven't experienced this, but I can understand the second hand not moving and being frozen, but for it to move backwards, that I'm a little bit skeptical about. Um, this is an unusual episode, guys. I mean, I'm you know, we're, we're talking about like pretty metaphysical. We're talking about like the nature of time and, and reality and how we experience our lives and childhood and we're doing these exercises. But at the same time, I'm recording this after one in the morning. So I'm having a hard time staying awake myself. Um, I try to do this stuff when I'm more alert, but actually it works out because, um, All that talk about like the Delta brainwave state. It's, you know, you might be listening to me uh, slowly, slowly reaching Delta. That's amazing. Wow. I've really been talking to you guys for 30 minutes. That's, (laughs) it's amazing because time has moved very quickly. Oh my gosh. So all in all. Um, really enjoyed my conversation with Lisa Broderick and hope all of you guys will check out her book All the Time in the World. So next week, guys, we are going to be taking a break from our descent into psychology and neuroscience and we'll be talking about free speech. I'll be joined by historian Jonathan Zimmerman for a conversation about the state of free speech in America today and contrast it with the right of free speech in oppressive regimes around the world. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram, at Nervous Habits podcast on Twitter, at Nervous Habits underscore. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast and write to the pod via email at nervous nervous habits podcast at gmail.com and remember time flies when you're having fun so next time you're waiting at the microwave for your popcorn to be ready try doing anything else in the interim (laughs) take care and stay nervous